We have wave sign <laughs> or waveform. That's what I'm talking about right there. We have waveform. Welcome to you, Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce our guest today, just want to mention I do have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. And I just want to point out that uh, that guy, Jeff Tiedrich, that does nothing but reply to Trump, uh, gets like three times as much money for his tweets than I do for the show. So <laughs> take that how you will. Um, but it's uh, it's ego is a month here at Machinic Unconscious bow, Happy bow, Hour. Bow, bow. And I'm very, very, very pleased to have today's guest, the Facebook villain himself, John motherfucking Zichterman. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And uh, please call me Ziggy. That's my dad's name. No, I'm just kidding. Ziggy. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it's really good to be Ziggy, back. And it's really uh, good to be talking about Sterner. Those of you who don't know, I mean, I've had John on the show probably five or six times by now. And uh, yeah, I think co-host so. of Beep Beep Lettuce. Uh, what, what else? You're doing another pod, though. Right. Yeah, I have another Besides show beep called beep. Uh, Work Stoppage, which focuses entirely on labor news. So, like, uh, strikes, uh, labor movements, particularly bad working conditions that people are working under, anything like that. And then after talking about all that serious stuff for 45 or 50 minutes, at the end of the show, we do a meme review so that it's not all just <laughs> stuff to be mad about. As John mentioned, we're, we're talking about Sterner today, and we're actually we're cracking open the unique in its property, and we're going to focus on, let's see, we're going to go through part one up until the, the last section we're going to cover is 1.2.2.2.2 titled Bats in the Belfry. <laughs> That's going to be kind of our, our target stopping point for today. Yeah, and I was I was mentioning and to you uh, off microphone before we started recording that I'm not sure if that's the way that uh, Feuerbach's The Essence of Christianity is laid out, because I know he's parodying that a little bit with his format here, or if this is just a huge exaggeration. And I feel bad because I should have looked at right. The Essence of Christianity to check. Maybe on next episode, we'll, uh, I'll, yeah. we'll have to <laughs> keep that a priority. But yeah, so just to clarify, too, for anybody that is maybe reading along or wants to read along. We're using the Wolfie Landstriker translation, the unique in its property, which is superior in both translation and aesthetics to the virgin ego and his own. Um, <laughs> today we'll be sub <laughs> we're gonna supplement a, this a little bit, a tiny, tiny bit with um, notes from Deleuze's Nietzsche Nietzsche in philosophy. And uh, I think as the as we get into part two, we'll really be drawing a, a bit more because I think that's where Deleuze focuses a lot of his references to Stirner. And then perhaps mm -hmm. eventually getting into maybe some references to uh, Derrida's Spectres of Marx, but that probably, we won't probably get to that today. But uh, th so this is my first 
full-on read-through of the book. And I gotta say that I really enjoyed the first, I don't know, maybe quarter of the book quite a bit up until we get into like section 1.3, the free. That started to get a little less meaty, but yeah, I really liked the first, yeah, that first 80 or so pages, roughly. Well, I think when he gets into that section where he starts to divide out how he views different political ideologies, he kind yeah. of steps away from having this, what what the crux of his argument really is, which is, I think in many ways, it's an epistemological argument, which is that like there right. is an un, unknowable, indivisible thing that is us at any given moment and trying to develop political opinions based on that i mean it can certainly influence your political opinions but i don't think it's to me at least i struggle to develop like a political program on top of what i get out of sterner you know yeah i want to start off i guess there's a quote i pulled from the deleuze's nietzschean philosophy uh, where he just kind of discusses broadly the book itself and uh, this direct quote the interest of sterner's book is threefold profound analysis of the insufficiency of the reappropriations of his predecessors, the discovery of the essential relation between the dialectic and the theory of ego, the ego alone being the reappropriating instance, profound vision of what the outcome of the dialectic was with the ego in the ego. So I have no idea what that means, but according to Deleuze, (laughs) that's what this book is about. And I mean, that is an Um, interesting quote, I think, because uh, thinking about the ego as the only reappropriating instance the only thing that actually does any of the reappropriating is kind of like central to sterner's everything right it's like he's he's harping and harping on the fact that like you don't it's not only that you don't have access to the external world to objective reality in a meaningful way you also don't have access to yourself and your internal world in that that's mediated too and i think that's yeah kind of like how he is manages to be so radical and and see through things like what he calls like pious atheism and stuff like that because it's still a, a, a subservience to some internal kind of spiritual world that you're generating. Uh, that's that's really interesting the way that you put that. I hadn't considered in that realm, but that really makes. I think it's really interesting to see how much i mean hegel as well but sterner like i guess my assumption was there wasn't this focus on consciousness in in either of them so or as like as the tremendous focus of their work right Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of i think psychoanalytic components to what idea you just discussed because you know he's saying like you you don't even know yourself that's almost a theory of unconscious right basically i mean that's kind of like it's the unconscious easy to say is the that, unknowable. Yeah. Or or like what's what's inaccessible is the more real part of the unconscious, right? It's like when it, whatever grasp you manage to get on on yourself is like a false crystallization. I think Sterner looks at that and he he's he's people holding up cardboard copies of themselves, little cutouts that are static and and setting them to the side whether they be aspirational or nostalgic or whatever and saying like this is the idea of me that i want to aspire to and i think his beef is kind of like doing that is so wildly unproductive and and it's kind of funny because it's almost like sterner is formulating a theory of desire um yeah and and in a lot of ways he's saying like you need to not let your desire become 
he doesn't put it this way, but it's like a perverse desire, like a desire for something that is no longer actually going to get you closer to anything that you desire. And in that, it's kind of like a primitive theory of unconsciousness. And it's interesting because this is, this is like, what, 30 or 40 years prior to Sigmund Freud even being born? Well, I think Freud was operating is it like in the 1870s, so I forget when... Oh, so he would have been a little kid around Freud this time. Was, I'm going to see when Freud was born. Because this was published in like, what, 48, 1848 or so? Oh, yeah, he was born in 1856. So this would have been like uh, 10, 10 years before Freud was born. was published in 1845. Sterner died the same year Sigmund Freud was born. Isn't that interesting? How interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I don't believe in reincarnation, but if I did, I'd be very intrigued by that. <laughs> <laughs> I read some wild shit. I read this whole, uh, well, not all of it, but a significant portion of this biography of uh, Freud that was pretty wild. Him and his cocaine that sounds and stuff. Wild. Like, <laughs> I had. Heard I remember that getting in a lot of hot water with. Uh, yeah, I, I got in a lot of hot water with some sixth grade teachers when I was supposed to do a report on a scientist, and I did my report on Sigmund Freud. <laughs> they were like, why is this kid doing this? <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, to go back to the, the my larger point just being like how much Sterner and Hegel, too, are both concerned with consciousness. And I don't know if it's the sort of Hegel starting point that both like Lacan and Sterner are or coming from that that's where like the uh <laughs> the sort of unified spirit if you will of of the thought is uh is emanating from perhaps this thing this relationship between maybe it's beca- maybe it's also that idea of like whenever you see patterns you're gonna lo- you know what i mean whenever you're looking for something you're gonna mm-hmm. find that thing over and over again right and so maybe like coming into this text now after having said like delving so far into lacan psychoanalysis analysis broadly that you know it's in it, i'm looking for those patterns but i think that that hegelian starting point for both even if it's a bastardized hegel that lacan picks up on from kojave uh i think you know th- maybe that's maybe there is some kind of parallel between lacan and and sterner to a degree and it's just I interesting to is. see sterner delving into unconscious even if he doesn't really spell it out that way or use the, the yeah. language. Well, I think it's a uh, it's definitely the common influence from Hegel, and I think it's ironic uh, that just much in the same way that like if you listen to the Why Theory podcast, Todd McGowan and Ryan Ingley will always talk about how Lacan tries to say that he's not being Hegelian, and then he does his most Hegelian stuff, and then when he kind of mocks Hegel, it's like well, he kind of gets Hegelianism wrong and then i think in in a in a kind of a funny and similar way like sterner is trying to turn away from dialectics and negate them and and come to the ultimate end of the dialectic in some way or or undermine it in some way but at the same time he can't help but reproduce dialectical language and dialectical thought yes. the whole time so it all reminds me of that i think was it Foucault who said that like no matter how much we try and depart from Hegel, he we always find him at the end of our projects. I think like Hegel put this germ of an idea into people's minds that he really took from Immanuel Kant. And he was like this bifurcation of like, you know, mind and reality, like this, this operation of the two instead of the unified one. And, and he like really spelled it out and, and gave very like 
you know, long-winded even explanations of it. And it just kind of caught everybody's imagination. Like it's a meme or something that, that, that reality and understanding is fundamentally like bifurcated and that there's a, a, an axis of unity between those opposites. Really part two of the book is where will is where the like dialectical critique is more mm-hmm. um, apparent or at least like in looking at Deleuze's Nietzsche and philosophy, a lot of the Deleuze's take on Stirner's critique of the dialectic is, is there. And, um, and that quote, I don't know if you remember this quote from an episode we did the last episode, I think we did, which mm-hmm. was a looking at an article about, I believe Stirner and Deleuze and this quote about it's there's something about like Stirner being proving that nihilism is at the heart of the dialectic. Yeah. Well, it's kind of reminiscent of I've picked up this book by Frederick Jameson called The Hegel Variations in which he kind of sets out to establish a Hegel without a telos, like a non-teleological Hegel, something that is dialectical and is evolving and becomes right. variants of itself. Um, but it it never is actually necessarily culminating in one specific thing. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, I'm only a third of the way through that book, so forgive me if my explanation is not thorough, <laughs> but um, it, it's, uh, it's very similar, I think, in the way to, in the way that Stirner looks at the dialectic um, when we get to, but we're not even at his critique of that yet. I think at the beginning of right. this book, he talks a lot about like, what it's like to be a child and like the stages of overcoming different forms of anxiety and, and fear of authority and eventually learning to be an authority and all of the like internalizations of power structures that we undergo as we go through that process. And he's like biting and sarcastic about it the whole time. It almost feels like a Saturday morning cartoon at some points. Again, that's like so Lacanian. It even, rem- I mean, it's not the mirror stage of development, but it's it's very, like it's in the ballpark, right, of that right. sort of analysis or that look into development of, of consciousness, development of the self or the I or whatever you want to, however you want to parse that. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's what Stirner felt probably was missing from his Hegelian contemporaries was he was like, well, they're all very concerned with spirit and like how big these universal kind of philosophical ideas can go. And he's like, I think that there's a lot of like the personal and the subjective and the nominal and the particular and the unique, however you want to put it, that gets lost in trying to really like found all of your philosophical notions on senses of universality while ignoring the particular. And it's kind of funny because you you can find Hegel saying that you shouldn't do that either. I don't have a particular passage to quote or anything, but Hegel also emphasizes the particular as much as the universal quite a bit because they have a dialectical relationship, right? And I think it's kind of interesting that there's a parallel there, to at least to my mind, between the way that like Charles Darwin's theory of competition and cooperation is kind of just truncated into a theory of competition and the other side is is really woefully underexamined. Do you want to read a couple of passages just to exemplify kind of what Stirner's doing or what he's like literally saying in the text just to give you an example of his analysis of this um, sort of start out. But everything that comes into contact with the child also defends itself against these encroachments and maintains its own existence. Consequently, since 
each one holds to itself and at the same time continually comes into collision with others, the battle for self-assertion is unavoidable. So this is, Which is a good example, too, I think, of, of where Stirner falls into Hegelian dialectics, too, right? Yeah, and it almost describing... sounds a little bit uh, Darwinian, too, doesn't it? It's like, you know, here we have these discrete objects, except now they're not just like animals or groups of animals, but a person out in the world. And it's like, yeah, you're going to brush up against things all the time that have a conflicting interest of preservation, even if it's just that, like, you you try to break one of your toys, maybe, and the toy is strong enough that it resists being broken. Like, you experience that conflict between intent and actual produced action, and it's through that, like, grating against... Like what I want to happen isn't happening that you discover who you are and you discover the world around you. Good analysis. A little bit further. In childhood, liberation takes the course wherein we try to find the reason for things to get at what's behind things. Therefore, we spy out the weakness of all, for which, as everyone knows, children have such have a sure instinct. Therefore, we find pleasure in breaking things and rummaging through hidden corners, prying into what is covered up or out of the way and trying our hand at everything. <laughs> That's true, too. I mean, especially the part about children being able to having a sure instinct for spying out weaknesses. Have you ever been just like totally owned by a six year old? They come up to you and they just say something that stings really like a six year old would come up to me and would be like, you have bad teeth. <laughs> and they would like run away. And I'd be like, I do have bad teeth, dude. That really hurt my feelings. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, it's weird. Like you, they haven't internalized ideology maybe fully or something um yeah an instinctive i think it's it's like a primordial kind of ideology it's like it's the ideology you have when you're just kind of recently arrived in a new and yeah. unfamiliar world right right like imagine yeah. like if you were an astronaut on another planet that's what a kid feels like like unprotected yeah. and just very alien for a long time they really they can cut they kind of cut through the fucking really the the geist in a sense right because they're not so yeah. immersed in it and affected by it as much as like well, an they adult. and sterner they goes no into that development of the universal too, like, right right i think this this next quote goes to this as well for quite some time we spared a conflict that leaves us so short of breath later the fight against reason the most beautiful childhood passes without requiring us to fight against reason we pay it no mind at all, don't deal with it, accept no reason. We are convinced of nothing through persuasion and are deaf to good reasons, principles, etc. But we find caresses, punishment, and the like hard to resist. Yeah, I mean, that's totally true as well. I mean, think about it. When you're a kid, it's like, you're like, I want Burger King for dinner. And your parents are like, well, you can't just have Burger King for dinner. One, you had it for dinner yesterday already. And two, it's expensive to go to Burger King. And they're like laying out these like very realistic and reasonable reasons why you can't go to Burger King. And if you're like fucking five or six years old, you have no conception of that stuff. <laughs> you're like, just right. make more money. <laughs> just drive me there. Yeah. Just do it. Like literally, <laughs> there's no, there's no. So your parents have to tell you like, no. And if you keep arguing with me about it, you're going to have to go to your room or whatever. And it's like, oh shit, an actual threat. Like it's something something else bad might happen if I don't shut up about this. It's like, you know, and in, in this, uh, you know, caresses and, and punishment, it's, it's the stick in the carrot, you know, it's, it's the classic thing. Like that's all parents have at their disposal when you're a kid because they can't like 
sit down and show you the family accounts and be like, this is why uh, this isn't in the budget this month or whatever. It won't matter to you. Another quote getting at this. Mind is the name of the first self-discovery, the first banishment of God from the divine, that is, from the uncanny, the phantasms, the powers above. Our fresh feeling of youth, this feeling of self, is no longer impressed by anything the world's is explained to its discredit because we are above it. We are mind. Yeah, that's interesting, too. So it's like the the development of a sense of self is like your first way of not being controlled by other things, right? Like it's your first step outside just your parents telling you what to do and how to do it and being in charge of you and sometimes even picking you up and physically just putting you through paces of things. If in childhood one had to overcome the resistance of the laws of the world, now in everything one plans, he bumps into an objection of, of the mind, of reason, of his own conscience. Or conscience, rather. If a child had yeah, to and overcome then that's, the resistance that's the internal, of the laws of the world. That's like the external the to in internal head. thing, right? Yeah, as soon as you have an yeah. internal world, as soon as you have like a theory of self, even if it's not one that you've like ex- meta-examined or whatever you are automatically building up an internal world that has just as many projections and weird biases and like a, you know, a priori kind of like assertions, uh, postulates that might not even be true. So it's like, as soon as you start to have an internal world, that internal world is immediately haunted, you know, to put it in like sterner terms, I guess. Yeah. Or even like the, yeah, so the Specters of Marx is where Derrida in particular goes in to this whole critique of, of Stirner that's present in Marx's, what is it, uh, German ideology, right? And so mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of the book focuses on like these notions of, of spirits, of of ghosts, of um, the revenant, etc. And like it's an interesting, almost a dialectical like look at, at Stirner versus versus Marx and like the the commonalities and the the way that they diverge and where Marx gets right. it wrong or where Stirner gets it wrong. And, well, and it's uh, interesting to we take the analogies that. of like the synonyms for geist and spirit and you know spook and haunted and stuff further and further because I think even to Stirner that was part of the fun, right? Was like in German these words are as open-ended and have kind of as broad of a connotation as they do in English. And the same go, uh, Wolfie talks about this in the preamble uh, when he's talking about the translation. He even says that um, uh, property has that same kind of, it has an economic meaning. It also has just a strictly analytical meaning. And then it also has some other meanings on top of that. And the open-endedness of these words and the syntactical meaning of things is, um, it's all obfuscated, right? It's like we don't actually say the things we mean. We say things that gesture towards the things we mean. And that's kind of one of the points that Stirner is trying to make about the self in a lot of ways. It's like you don't have a name for the self. You just have names that kind of can guide you toward the self. And when you hold up one of those names and let it tower above your actual self and control it, then that's what he basically objects to. And that's almost in a way gesturing towards like, linguistics um you know i'm thinking of Cicero and the signifier signified relationship yep absolutely it's weird how like in a satirical way and in a way that i think it would be hard for a lot of people to take seriously sterner manages to kind of anticipate so many things that would be fleshed out later 
sometimes seemingly without any actual influence from Sterner at all. Just like these were things that were on people's minds for like a, a while, like a hundred years, you know? Yeah. And I think even to be fair, I think Hegel doesn't get the credit he deserves too for recognizing some of that, uh, that kind of, I don't even know that paradigm mm-hmm. of signifier signif- signified. Yeah. Well, but I it's, think that it's is weird to some say, of that, but like, like gesture towards. Yeah. It's weird to say, despite how highly rated Hegel is, that he's still underrated. But I think it's true. I think Hegel, like, people think that you can kind of just, like, casually refute Hegel or that philosophy has moved past Hegel. And it's like, I don't really think in a lot of ways that philosophy has moved that far past Kant. <laughs> and that we, we still need to catch up to Hegel sometimes. Shit. Or Plato, you know, to, to some extent. Yeah. In, in a way. Like, exactly. I mean, there's the cliched quote about every all philosophy being a footnote to Plato. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's Aristotle's forward, fault, though, if you ask me. <laughs> moving forward, so the next, so we start out like I said, where Sterner's looking at this development of, I guess, of of consciousness, how that is sort of how to how the eye is creating it, being created, um, and using the example of the child, like kind of formulating its own ego and being, I guess, incorporated into the world, into the world spirit, or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Yeah. Um, but now he's going to move into this. I think the, the second portion is broadly like this critique of spirit generally. And I do want to read another mm-hmm. bit from Nietzsche and philosophy from uh, Deleuze's book in the history of the dialectic. Sterner has a place apart, the final extreme place. Sterner was the audacious dialectician who tried to reconcile the dialectic with the art of the sophists. He was able to rediscover the path of the question which one? He knew how to make it the essential question against Hegel, Bauer, Feuerbach, and Feuerbach simultaneously. The conceptual question, what is man, has then changed into the personal question, who is man? With what the concept was sought for in order to realize it, with who it is, no longer any question at all. But the answer is personally on hand at once in the... Yeah, but I think it's a the the thrust of it is present right at the beginning, right? It's like... You can take any grand philosophical question like, what is life or what is love or who who is man or who is humanity? And the question is always like, which which one, which which man, which love, which humanity, which life are you talking about? It's like they're all very different. And yes, they share things in common that you could characterize as like universal and binding, but their relationships and their attitudes and their positionings to those things are all very, very different depending on where they are, their class status, their, you know, their mental and physical well-being and any number of other factors. To exemplify this from Sterner's own own mouth here, but if the spirit is recognized as the essential thing, it still makes a difference whether the spirit is poor or rich, and therefore one tries to become rich in spirit. The spirit wants to spread out to found its empire, an empire not of this world, the world just vanquished. So then it longs to be all in all in itself, in other words, although I am spirit, I am not yet perfectly spirit and must first strive for the perfect spirit. And this is interesting, too, because this is kind of like the teleology thing, right? Like, I think most readings of Hegel indicate that Hegel believes kind of, kind of, it's like you said, it's kind of a platonic thing, right? Like there is a, there is a perfect spirit maybe only in an abstract form or in an in an abstracted way in an in an idealistic way but everything 
functionally is like lower orders, imperfect versions of that spirit. And the dialectic is that constant refinement, right? Where something that's imperfect is always trying to make its way towards being the perfect version of itself, whether that's spirit or anything else. And, you know, I think Stirner just like really wants to emphasize that like there, there isn't that. And and not only is there not that, but like the process of moving towards a more perfect something is imaginary. There is no approaching the perfect spirit or the, the, the completed dialectic. There's always going to be a gap, something, something missing or incomplete. Which I think is, that's extremely Lacanian too, right? Like that gap, Lacan focuses a lot on those gaps. But I think it's what's yep. interesting too, like the flip side of the coin, which, and although maybe this is not entirely the flip side, but right, Hegel is um, very largely influenced by, what is it, Lutheran Christianity, right? And yep. so like, this is also sort of a formulation of how, like, I'm just thinking dialectically, inter- or like think about the dialectic of Christ. Christ kind of exemplifies this because it's, Spirit, it's God becoming man, right? And yeah, then well, like in terms of in terms of theology too, in terms of theology, the goal itself is to become more Christ-like, right? To become the per, to become this perfect, um, this universal spirit, like this. I'm trying to think, like in in Christian terms, it's like yeah. the church, maybe like the body of the church is. I don't know. There's something there. Yeah, well, but I, I think it's quite. like it's there's like the dialectic between uh, Jesus and God, right? Like Jesus right. is the imperfect uh, appendage or iteration of God that is sent down to Earth to correct things and to guide people in their paths. But that also Jesus's necessity to do that implies that there was something absent in all of the things that God set in motion, and so. Interestingly, Christianity kind of covers that over by having a trinity, right? It's not just the Father and the Son. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is this kind of ambiguous thing that maybe in some way you could see as like the dialectic between them, but you could also maybe see it as like the limit, right? Like wherever there's two, there's always a third because there's a relation between them. And if you're observing that relation, that means that you're outside of both of them. Right. Like if, if you can formulate that, then there's already a, a theoretical and interior like mental separation from those things. So in a lot of ways that I think people like talk about how there's always something missing or there's always something there's always a gap there. Like there's even that gap in Christianity. Right. And I think Hegel I would be hard pressed to tell you if I thought Hegel managed to see through that or not. That's a question for somebody much smarter than me. I think it's interesting too because also Lacan deals with threes a lot, right? And like the Borromean knot is, you know, the mm-hmm. the or it's the the red the three registers, the real, the imaginary, and the symbolic. And I'm wondering, like, what yep. that does that map onto the Trinity too, like? I don't, I mean, I'm not maybe, smart enough to figure that out exactly, but yeah, I wonder I mean, if like right, it feels like, the, like maybe there is. The real is supposed to be inaccessible, right? So that's that would be the father, and then the imaginary would be. I think the imaginary the son, would be the Christ. son, and then the Holy Spirit would be the symbolic, the thing that the point of interpretation. Yes. 
which kind of, right. ma- okay. I don't know if that's a correct mapping onto Christianity, yeah. <laughs> but it maps nicely with my other mapping of something onto Christianity, so I think we'll keep it. <laughs> yeah. Didn't Hegel also have, so he, of course there's dialectics, but didn't he have these, maybe it was threes or sevens or something, right? Like there's some relationship yeah, I, to these in, in Hegel too that I can't. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, dialectics two, uh, trialectics, <laughs> Havana Nights, you know, like. <laughs> and then this idea that is the real is rational and the rational is real. Yeah, that's that's a Hegelian, right? Like that's yeah, yes, straight out of Hegel. Like that that you need to find the the rational in the real and not just be obsessed with uh, pure rationality. Like that's what um, that's basically the critique of pure reason, right there. That Hegel is uh, lifting straight Building from Kant. Yeah, building. Yeah, well, you know, um, what would you say? Pushing the envelope of, or uh, further yeah. formulating, or some other pleasant yeah. economic or academic-sounding phrase. Right. I don't think that Hegel is trying. He's not trying to negate Kant. He's extending the project out in a different. Well, form. I think there are parts of Kant that maybe he even inadvertently negates. Or I, I'm. It's always hard for me to understand Hegel's relationality to Kant, especially because Kant is like Hegel's hard enough to read. You know what I'm yeah. talking about? I'm not going to read Immanuel Kant. <laughs> like, no, thank you. <laughs> there, uh, they remind me actually. Like the the style of the prose reminds me of one another. But I think at least Hegel is a bit more interesting with what he's doing, well, perhaps than than Kant, Kant. At least Kant, on the surface, Kant was like a he was like a hermit. Right. And he like I think he spoke and gave presentations, but it's my understanding that he wrote books much more in the manner of like writing books. Whereas I think Hegel primary from my understanding, I could be off base here, but Hegel primarily developed his ideas in front of a class. Exactly. Right. Lecturing and coming to conclusions along the way. And so I think he has a little bit more of a conversational and approachable style, even though it can be very stilted and, and academic at times. But Kant is where we get this no uh, Kant talks about like the noumenal and the what's the other side of like there's the noumenal world and the phenomenal world. Oh, noumenal world. and the phenomenal world. Does, does he make world. that di- yeah. Does he make that distinction, right? I think so. I or that could be a modernization of his ideas, noumenal versus phenomenal. Yeah, that comes straight from Kant. Yeah. I had to check. <laughs> The, phen- the phenomenal world is the world we are aware of. This is the world where we construct out the sensations that are present to our consciousness. The noumenal world consists of things we seem compelled to believe in, but which we can never know because we lack sense evidence of it. Which would be, well, I don't know if that would be the real, um, would be the noumenal world. No, because I mean, the, I the, that, that, necessarily- that would be the symbolic, wouldn't it? That would be the thing that we project onto things where like, I have an intuition that this is how these things fit together. I have a constructed kind of structure of relations for these things, but the, the truly inaccessible, that would be the real, like something that we truly don't, aren't able to have any knowledge of because as soon as we come up with a, a phenomenological explanation for it, even if that is just our, theory of how it happens then that's just a that that no longer becomes the real i think i mean that's that's the impression i get i'm by no means a a lacanian uh scholar but i no but i think there is i might sound like one by the end of this episode (laughs) (laughs) right there is something to i think this though but because like god in a sense 
or the universal could be is that synonymous with the real because it's something beyond our ability to we can only gesture towards through like this filter of of language and and consciousness etc but that it, we don't have I think it is direct if, access if to I think it is if you're a Hegelian or a Lacanian <laughs> maybe not if you are more Spinozan yeah, I don't. I, mean, I could be off base here as well, but I think maybe with a radical kind of monistic theory, you could, you would have to say that the real is accessible in some way. But um, I don't know if I could get behind that. I I do think that there is something to the idea that there is a realm of of force or or action or influence that is just like completely hidden from us by ourselves by the design of what we are as a being yeah because if you're maybe and this is the weird thing too because like stern are so focused on on the eye on this like unique element but certainly if you contrast that with the way that lacan is conceiving of or psychoanalysis really broadly is making this argument that we're it's the other that sort of creates the su- like work sort of created by the other in a sense or like yes even to get sociological with it like this concept of like the uh, the looking glass self where you're constructing your own identity by almost like this this um, process of like an echolocation almost because I'm like I'm sending out a signal yeah. into the world and then I'm getting feedback from the world I'm getting sense feedback from the world that tells that's telling me something and then there's that dialectical dance back and forth that is helping me generate my subjectivity right it's like almost like that's not just how you learn about yourself but it's also how you construct yourself both in a real and inaccessible way like that process has an effect on the real momentary unique fluid you but then it also has an effect on your your conscious phenomenological processes where you're triangulating triangulating your identity based on the world around you and it's it's interesting how that through line it it maps nicely onto almost any one of the thinkers that we've been discussing like Sterner had a theory of that kind of Nietzsche had a theory of that kind of Hegel certainly did any of the psychoanalytic tradition certainly does um I mean, I think it's really cool, and I think that's something that when you're growing up, it's a question that's on your mind, right? So it's as an adult now, it's nice to have resources that can articulate it. And of course, uh, you know, knowing the cause of symptoms isn't a cure, but it can be a relief. <laughs> right. There is no more truth to be recognized in the world Things contradict themselves. Thoughts about things are undiscriminating. Good and bad are all the same, so that what one calls good, another finds bad. So knowledge of the truth has ended, and only the person without knowledge, the person who finds nothing to recognize in the world, remains. And this person just lets the truth-empty world be and takes no account of it. Damn, that's a great quote. (laughs) Yeah, that's really awesome. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's just where does truth come from? And do we have access to it? And I think the flat answer is basically like, no, as far as anyone can tell. He's be- I think, too, like this belies the sort of still Hegelian approach that Sterner is 
even though he's critiquing, he falls into this too because here he's looking at this. The things contradict them in, in the world, right? Um, and he gives this great example of good and bad and the way that those can be applied to they're all, all them all being the same. They can be interpreted right. any number of ways. It's kind of a it's kind of an early version of uh, one man's trash is another man's treasure. You yeah. know what I mean? It's um, it's an expression of subjectivity and kind of it's almost like a it's a form of postmodern analysis it's like saying things aren't just one thing there is no crystallized modernity with with its rules and its relations and all of its things ordered according to it you have to ask it's like which modernity are you talking about mine yours yeah the which ones uh, random serfs you know that goes back to that other quote it was like asking which like which specific one right yep Exactly. But where is this spiritual world supposed to come from? Nowhere else but from itself. It must reveal itself and the words that it speaks. The revelations in which it unveils itself, these are its world. As a dreamer lives and has his world only in the fanciful patterns that he create, that he himself creates, as a fool generates his own dream world, without which he wouldn't be able, he wouldn't even be able to be a fool. So spirit has to create its spirit world for itself, and until it creates this, is no spirit. That's definitely Hegelian and Lacanian, right? Yeah, well, it's um, it's kind of calling the spirit thing into question, right? It's like saying, you know, much in the same way, it's like if God created everything, then where did God come from? It's like asking, well, if spirit is manifest as everything, then what is manifesting as spirit? spirit. What is the origin yeah. of spirit? And it's like... To Sterner's mind, it seems like spirit is this self-reflexive thing. It haunts itself. It generates territories for itself to occupy. Because if it didn't do that, it wouldn't be a thing. It's kind of um, it's kind of Cartesian, right? It's like I think, bef- therefore I am. But it's more like I think, therefore I am haunted. <laughs> nice. That's a good move. And it reminded me too of that that quote that I actually brought up earlier from Deleuze, I think he specifically references almost this exact thing, right? In the history of the dialectic, Sterner has a, fi- a place apart, the final extreme place he was able to rediscover. Da, 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 da. The conceptual question, what is man, has then changed into the personal question, who is man, with what the concept was sought for in order to realize it with who, it is no longer any question at all. But the answer is personally on hand at once, yeah, well, the answer is personally on hand, because when you ask who is man, the answer is like, well, it's yourself. You're creating that question. You're establishing the borders of the concept of man in your process of asking it. And in doing so, you're positioning it in relation to yourself. And by doing that, it's kind of auto-filling in all of the properties of man to be relational to you, which means they'll end up being your properties right like it can't come from anywhere else and it's like earlier in that quote it's or, or the earlier quote that we were talking about where it talks about ego being the sole uh reappropriating thing in a relationship it's like that's it's the only point of processing there's no there it's almost like there's nothing external to the text but it's actually there is nothing external to the conceptualization the ego the unique the thing that's doing it so it's like it's this relentless trying to get at the back of things trying to get behind what's happening and when you really boil down to it Stirner is like it's all reflexive 
it's all self-articulated and self-defined. Yeah, and to this, I think the next section from that quote gets at this too. He's like, thus its creations make it spirit, and in its creation one recognizes it, the creator. It lives in them, they are its world. And then further on he's yeah, like, exactly. now what is the spirit? It is the creator of a spiritual world. Yeah. Which is just, so God, it's that's like, so wh- Lacanian. Like, it's so funny from? to see that. Yeah. It's so funny to see that, like, and again, I don't know if I'm just projecting because they have well, the same kind of, kind of like snarkiness. Like, it took it. They all they're all snarky writers in their own way. I mean, it took um, what is it? It took Zizek to convince everybody <laughs> that Lacan and Hegel were thinking in line with each other. Yeah. Right. I think that was the sublime right. object of ideology. And once that happened, everybody who made that leap is like, now I can't think about it any other way. And then we (laughs) have these other thinkers who have tied, you know, very interesting commentary talking about him anticipating other movements. But what's really interesting is the way in which he was kind of like the best student of Hegel, even as he tried to depart from him. So now that you have Hegel as this like connecting point between Stirner and Lacan, it's not actually that hard to draw lines straight between them. Um, yeah. and it, it's really exciting. It feels a bit like you've struck gold, doesn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah, I can't remember if it was, if it was Deleuze or Derrida that gets at this kind of like this same sort of idea about like, uh, I think, it, yeah, it actually is Derrida because he's like comparing Marx and Stirner as like the, the sort of son of Hegel. Right. That's interesting. But anyways, uh, this next quote, I think, too, I think really just goes even further in like clarifying this, laying out this argument. Are you a thinking being before you think? When you create the first thought, you create yourself, the thinking being, because you didn't think before you think a thought, i.e. have a thought. Isn't it your singing that makes you a singer, your speaking that makes you a speaking human being? Now, so too, it is the producing of the spiritual that first makes you a spirit. Yeah. And that's that's just it right there. It's like the self the self generating nature of consciousness. It has no, it has nothing under it justifying it other than itself. It kind of reminds me, in a way, I'm not very far into Laruelle's uh, philosophy and non philosophy translated by Taylor Adkins, but <laughs> the impression that I'm getting from it is that he's looking at philosophy and saying like the whole body of philosophy is functioning in the same way. It's self-justifying, self-contained, and self-perpetuating. And so what he's trying to do, as far as I can tell, is develop a body of like a more scientific or like non-Euclidean style of approach that will actually provide a, a supporting framework for philosophy and also allow us to interrogate it differently. And I think that was also what Sterner was trying to do and kind of why he gets misunderstood a lot because what he's trying to do is very non-intuitive and it's saying like, Hey, whatever your explanation is for phenomena on top of it, like there's some kind of source code, there's some kind of lower, more primitive measure of influence that we're not examining. And I want to get down to that. And he just tunnels and tunnels and tunnels down into what's behind the meaning until he eventually gets at the kind of the reflexive or the ultimately empty. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a nothingness. It's like a Nile or a zero of it all. Which in itself, and I forget what Saul Newman said about this when I had him on the podcast, because I kind of asked him the same thing about like, is this concept of the creative nothing, which I think we'll get into like in part two of of the book discussion, but just to give, I guess, a preview or to like, you know, put a pin in that, 
what's the relation between the unique and and the uh, and like Lacan's lack that's sort of the constitutive of subjectivity in itself. Like I think there's right. some there's there's some kind of analog there. Like there's a relationship that I'm not smart enough to like really get into. Well, but I think it's I think you articulated it pretty well. I mean, the unique is always a lacking being, right? Because it doesn't know itself, and it is also not tied to any kind of universal, right? Because Scherner's whole criticism is that when you build up ideas of yourself or ideas of who you are or how you fit into society or something, those are haunting you because they're preventing you from facing that inaccessibility that and, and just being okay with it, just like vibing with it and, and going along with it and accepting it and, and using it as part of just who you are. And I think that that that's kind of the thing is like Sterner is saying like you can't ever escape that. Like there's no getting out of being a the a unique being. Uh, and I think Lacan would be saying like, there's no way to escape being, a a lacking being, you know, you, right. And if it, you it, are, it, really a being, is, it just boils down to that. You, yeah. If you are a being, a speaking being, you have, you are a lacking subject or. Right. It's like, they're all interchangeable. Like, it, oh, sure. I think therefore I am, but it's also like, I think therefore I lack, I lack, therefore I am, I am, therefore I lack. They all work. You can draw arrows between any of the three of them, and they're all fine. It, it, it all checks out every time. Instead of saying, I am more than spirit, you contritely say, I am less than spirit, and I can only think about spirit, pure spirit, or the spirit that is nothing but spirit, but am not this. <laughs> and since I am not this, it is another, it exists, whom I call God. Well, that's exactly what we were just saying, right? Like that's that's the perfect description of lack, which is like there is a perfect universal and it's not me. <laughs> and I I wish I was that. I obsess and fantasize about that. I'm I'm c- completely controlled by it, but I can never be it. And that's w- what a Sisyphean kind of thing. It's it's easy <laughs> to understand why Camus would take direct influence from Stirner as well. Did he really? Because he dedicated the B he yeah, he dedicated the preface to God, I always forget if it's the stranger or the rebel. But he dedicated the preface of one of his books to Stirner. I think it was the Rebel. Damn, I it had has no to idea. be right. <laughs> yeah, I, that totally that tracks, right? I had no idea. We'll have to pull that in for next time. Yeah, Sorry. definitely. That and 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 check on the structure of Feuerbach's Essence of Christianity. Those will be that our too, yeah. tasty follow-up treats to for people who follow this little mini series. <laughs> Another quote. It lies in the nature of the thing that the spirit which is supposed to exist as pure spirit must be an otherworldly one. For since I am not it it can only exist outside of me since the human being doesn't fully merge into spirit. Then pure spirit spirit as such can only be outside of human beings beyond the human world, not earthly, but heavenly. I think it's passages like this that really drive home why the song personal Jesus is such (laughs) a fucking good song. Right, because they they really broke through that. Depeche Mode was like, what if you could just reach out and touch faith? What if you had access to the perfect... I don't even know if that's the main thrust of the song, but that's always the the, the image that goes through my head. It's like, 
you know, you see these evangelical churches and these mega churches and stuff. And it's like, they're all celebrating and putting on a show and there's like quote unquote miracles happening, but there's not really miracles happening. You can't like really reach out and viscerally experience God. You can experience like a self-induced ecstasy, but it's, it's all coming internally. Like, yeah, there is no, there is no direct access. And so when I hear something like a, like personal Jesus, I'm like, yeah, what if there was a personal Jesus? What if I had a personal what if I could pick up my red phone and just call God? Would Faith wouldn't work the same way. Religion would have no meaning. There would be no measure of social control with it. So it's like that, that inaccessibility is what allows religion to be such a, such a strong and powerful and vitriolic and all-consuming force in people's lives. It wouldn't be that if we had direct knowledge of God. Oh, that's true too. Because like, oh man, I'm really interestingly seeing this connection between the real and god and i don't know like it like i said i don't know how <laughs> correct that is yeah laconians could be scoffing at us right now but who knows i mean we could do an entire episode on what the real is and probably still not figure out exactly what it is right or like even be able to you know what i mean we could probably do five hours on just what the on the real itself well it doesn't the real kind of resist categorization and explanation yes. be- yeah. through, through its inaccessibility. So it, exactly. it's so relevant to a conversation about Sterner because that's what he's doing when he says, uh, Der Einzige, you know, the unique, it's like the, the unique is not a name for a thing. It is a name for the sake of having a name, trying hopelessly to gesture at something that resists classification or even a measure of discreteness from the world around it. The same way that the real resists sim- symbolization, too. Exactly. Right? That's exactly what that is, is symbolization. Like, once you see the outline of something and perceive it as separate from something else, you've, you've, sim- you've ratified it into a symbolic order in your mind. And the real fights that. And the unique fights that, too. Or I wouldn't even say fight. I would just say is impervious to it, uh, yeah. definitionally. This next quote really gets to this, too. Only from this conflict in which I and the spirit lie, only because I and spirit are not names for one and the same thing, but different names for entirely different things, only because I am not spirit and spirit is not I, only from this does one get the completely tautological explanation of the need for the spirit to live in the other world, i.e. to be God. (laughs) I mean, that's it. That's it right there. (laughs) Oh, God. And again, like this. I mean, if God were present, it wouldn't be God. That's why Jesus isn't God, even though he is, which I don't understand at all, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's all God, but all man at the same time. Yeah. This too, this quote also is just so Lacanian. And I guess it's maybe that playful, like snarky attitude again that, that I see that is the like through line because this is yeah. exactly i think in a lot of ways of like Khan was just uh sterner who was more successful right like sterner <laughs> right. never wanted to be successful and i think lacan had a better idea of how to navigate his his desire in a practical sense or not even desire but just like i don't know life trajectory like sterner was a mess if you know anything about his personal life he just hemorrhaged money and then he died of an insect bite like very 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 bad way to go out yeah 
What do we gain then when, for a change, we install the divine that was outside us into ourselves? Are, are we that which is in us as little as we are that which is outside uh, which is outside us? I am as little my heart as I am my sweetheart, this other I of mine, precisely because we are not the spirit that dwells in us. Precisely for this reason, we had to move it outside ourselves. It was not we. It did not come together as one with us. And therefore, we could do nothing other than to think of it as existing outside of us, beyond us, in the other world. Yeah, and I think that's really important, too, because it's like when he talks about spirit is not I, you know, I think a lot of people from this era would retort, yes, it is. You are your spirit. And Stirner is basically saying, well, if it's my spirit, then it's not me. Because <laughs> then I'm this other thing that's an ownership of the spirit. So what is that? What's that yeah. me? What's the what's the thing that you keep gesturing through to get to a a, a little Funko Pop version of what <laughs> you're trying to describe? Um, did you have any anything else you wanted to add on or talk about on this quote in particular? I mean, I just think it's really interesting about this quote. Um, how he he just really when he says, "Are we that which is in us as little as we are that which is outside us?" I am as little my heart as I am my sweetheart. And he's just really harping, I think, very pointedly on that that reflexive uh, nature of language, right? Like when, when you're yeah. like, I am my mind, or I am my spirit, or I am my soul, I am my thoughts and feelings and wants and needs. It's like, no, you're not. Those are your properties. Those are things that you have. You just said they were yours. You know, your sweetheart <laughs> is your sweetheart. Your heart is your heart. It's not you. You're this thing you you don't even have language to gesture towards. Even if you just say, I'm me, it's like, which you? You right now? You in the heat of an argument? You relaxing in the evening? Uh, eating dinner? You know, it, you're not you're not this static thing. You're not yes. you're not just a still image. Right. Ah, that's really interesting. Um I'm thinking about that like in the context of um, a really like a Spinozist conception of the universal because it's like, okay, where like point to yourself five minutes ago. Is that is that you or like are you the moment you were when you were born or are you when you were five years old? Are you in the future right. when you're 50 years old? Like at what point is you like it's you're not this unified thing you're this process you're like a dis you're a process distributed over time and space yeah and really. you're not discrete that's the thing there's no yes there's exactly. no markable barrier between you and your life and your environment and your circumstances and like all your properties there's no there's no easy way to say like this is me and these are the things about me because as soon as you point at something and you go, this is me, it's like, well, what makes that you? And you're like, well, this, this, and this. And it's like, those are just your properties. You still have not gestured at yourself yet. And it's kind of like the same thing. It's like if I have um, the classic example of a broom, right? If I have a broom and I replace the handle, is that the same broom? Okay, well, another couple of years go by and I replace the little head on it too and the brushes over time. Now is it the same broom? It has no original parts. And right. like the cells in your, you know, this is maybe yeah. not super relevant, but like the cells in your body... <laughs> you go through all of them in like seven years. So 
theoretically, seven years later, you're basically a totally different person. But of course, you're a continuation. You're an extension. You're a process. You're a projection of something else. But only for that time. That's never that's never a totalizing way to describe yourself. So holding yeah. up even any of these ideas that we just discussed and saying, like, that's what I am. That's what a person is. Sterner says, no, that's that's still just a, a poor and lacking representation of you and one that will lead you away from whatever you actually are at that time. This goes to another interesting thing, which I think is counterintuitive, is like how much Hegel or that Hegel can sort of be used or like even almost interrogates a little bit or gestures towards like cybernetics. Because I'm thinking about this too in the context of yeah. like if you were if you're if your consciousness is copied over like it's not is is the new thing that has all of your properties is is that you or you know what I mean like is that yours is your because right. we like I think the conception is that maybe even that's the dualistic idea is like is if my if my if my spirit isn't present in this other iteration or like this other thing that shares my properties is it really quote unquote me like i think that's an interesting way to look at this like the um the implications of this and like this kind of cybernetic right. or like what have you um whether it be like cloning or you know these whatever approaches towards like some type of simulated um or like downloading one's consciousness um but I think that only makes sense in right. like well, this, it's, it's if like you a, have a dualistic approach, like a Car Cartesian approach. Well, I think that Sterner is kind of trying to, like, I think, uh, so right, in like simulation and simulacra, the idea is that like some copies do have originals, right? And then copies without originals have become distanced and, and alienated from understanding. But... I think Scherner would tell you, like, no copies have originals. There is no right. original. There is there is nothing behind yes. the curtain. There's no. Yeah. All of this has been generated by itself. It right. it's self creating and self perpetuating because everything, just by the laws of physics, functions in its own interests. Yeah, like a rock is hard because that keeps it a rock, and if it weren't hard, it would be gravel you know <laughs> yeah. or if it, it's it's not exposed to wind and water because that's what keeps it a rock and if it had been now it would be sand or you know whatever that's a great example of like that concept of spirit too it's like this it's that sophistry <laughs> you know what i mean yeah exactly well that's another thing is like the sophistry sophistry i think gets a bad rap in <laughs> no i agree in philosophy <laughs> Uh, and Sterner, like if, if you ever read, um, and, and Wolfie in the preamble to this kind of talks about it, um, the philosophical reactionaries where he does a takedown of Hegel and Kuno Fischer, but he, his takedown of Hegel is so sarcastic. It, it doesn't even really amount to a takedown. Um, but it's so biting. And I think, um, it really gives you a, a deeper look into Sterner's own mind than maybe, uh, the unique in its property or Sterner's critics uh, really can. It's also very short, which is nice. I think this too, that's extremely like a Lacanian idea. And 
I'm wondering why Baudrillard fell into this trap of like the the real and you know what I mean that's sort of like the romantic reactionary approach that there's a lost real but where Lacan would say like yeah. no there's the lost object you never you never even had the lost object to begin with <laughs> well to be fair I haven't read Baudrillard firsthand that's been on my to read list for a long time so uh, my assessment of him is secondhand and maybe yeah. not the best, but yeah, I mean, I think that at least this critique of what is maybe a straw man of Baudrillard that we've thrown up is certainly true. Like, I think that if that's your that's your reading of Baudrillard, then you're falling into a trap of being like, yeah. it's it's the reaction of nostalgia, right? And you see that take place politically, like even you know with the fucking make America great again thing it's like america was never great you know there there was never that magical piece that we lost it's never been there you've never even known what it is you can't the lost object that we never had yeah the lost object that we never possessed to begin with but yeah the Mm -hmm. i mean i I don't think it's necessarily though a straw manning of of baudrillard because he real i mean he literally kind of describes the procession of simulacra and which i think has some like it's in many ways, it's kind of like this genealogical methodology that, you know, starts right. with Nietzsche and like also, you know, Foucault obviously used, but it's so it's that, but I think he's missing. And even though he, I think he was a sort of paid attention to Lacan and read Lacan, didn't really like grasp that important caveat of, you know, this lost, this lost original was never, there is like, that's a, that's a spook. <laughs> the lost original is the spook. Yeah, it never, it never was. It's like it's like the the virgin birth of Jesus. Like if Jesus was a man, <laughs> he was created by sex. I hate to break it to you, Christians, right, but yeah. <laughs> that's how that's how people are made. So it's like there's always this caveat of like there's this perfect thing, this thing above all things that makes it not incomplete, that makes it holy, that makes it holistic. And that thing is always a lie, whether it's a lie that you learned from society or a lie that you cooked up for yourself. The idea of of a completion is always a lie. And I think that's kind of why you have people like, again, Todd McGowan, who say that like his incredibly spicy take of Marx being a right wing deviation from Hegel. When you hear him explain it, I think there is a, some weight to the kind of germ of truth there, which is that in a lot of ways, Marxist philosophy tends to want to completely reconcile and overcome uh, this dialectical conflict, they, they, contradiction. They want to have dominion over contradiction and, and have it be subservient to them. And I don't think that if you're really Hegelian that you ever think that contradiction can be properly resolved. And of course, Hegel would, in his, uh, in his book about how government government should work he was like that means that the prussian state is just fine actually because it's an imperfect thing on its way to a more perfect thing and that's kind of a a weirdly a weird resignation to make but he was probably just protecting his position at the academy but anyway you know to me the idea is like you still have to you still have to struggle through contradiction because if you don't contradiction will just make you struggle through it like there's no escaping it you don't get to get outside of it 
you don't ever get to be at the end of a contradiction. It always grows and manifests and morphs and takes on new attributes and properties because maybe thinking about it this way, that uh, dialectical contradiction is also a creative nothing. There's like a nothing behind it that means it's self-generating and and self-applicating. And that is what Deleuze is getting at when he's saying that nihilism, that Stirner shows that nihilism is at the heart of the dialectic. Perhaps. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's it. Because I never, I I don't think I ever 100% got that quote. But <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think now that you're like, that converges perfectly with that. I'm like, okay, I, I kind of understand that. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's so funny. It's like this, the almost like language games that Stirner and also Lacan play is like these, these tautological structures are very like, it's difficult to, it makes for difficult reading or not difficult reading so much as difficult understanding because it's that it's so circular. Mm-hmm. It like it f- fucking short circuits your brain. Like it short circuits logic because you are sort <laughs> well, of, a- you have convinced yourself that these contingent um, things are, have like a concrete, like spiritual essence or like universal thing outside of your own material, whatever. <laughs> Exactly. There's there's something grounding it. It's all yeah. placed upon something. But Sterner says, I have placed my cause upon nothing because that's the only place you can really place it. <laughs> and, and placing it on something is yes. always a lie. Right. Oh god, that's so good. Um so we'll move on. We'll see we'll see how this next quote changes things or maybe emphasizes what we've the, this kind of through line we've already been working towards. To this we reply the highest essence may be the human essence, but precisely because it is his essence and not he himself, it doesn't matter at all whether we see it outside of him and view it as God or find it in him and call it human essence or the human being. I am neither God nor the human being, neither the highest essence nor my essence. And so on the whole, it doesn't matter whether I think of the essence as in me or outside of me, indeed, we actually always think of the highest essence in both kinds of otherworldliness, the inner and the outer at the same time, because God's spirit in the Christian view is also our spirit and dwells in us. It dwells in heaven and dwells in us. We poor things are just its dwelling, and if Feuerbach destroys its heavenly dwelling and forces it to move lock, stock, and barrel into us, then we, its early lodgings, will be very much overcrowded. Well, that just reinforces my opinion that <laughs> we were right on the money when we talked about the Holy Spirit being the symbolic order that allows you to have some kind of imaginary bridge from the incomplete to the complete. Um, because if God's Spirit is within you and outside of you, then you're part of His holy, perfect everything, right? And... Yeah, and and then that makes God accessible, even though he still isn't, even though that lack is still there. You're still unique and apart and particular from God in practice, because also the universality of God is is a lie or just a a trick of language where you say, where you gesture at everything and you say, that's God. Right. Yeah, I'm glad you referenced that because I'm curious, like, how... How this can be squared with with like Spinoza, you know what I mean? 
with like the kind of universal That's my monism question too, of Spinoza. I feel like Deleuze handles this stuff really right. well, but I don't, I've, I haven't read a lot of Spinoza firsthand. I know him through secondary sources mostly. Yeah. So it makes me wonder right. if like Deleuze isn't doing to Spinoza kind of what Marx what did to Hegel and like inverting a lot of it. Right. Or even what Stirner did to Hegel and inverting it or yeah, following exactly. it through That's, to its conclusion. Yeah. That's kind of what I, I guess was... are kind of the same thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In many ways. Um, but yeah, I was thinking, I was on that same track. Let's see what, so we're getting more directly here with, into the, like, I think, critique of Christianity. The good believers and church fathers did not realize that along with the belief in ghosts, religion would be, this is really spicy, religion would be deprived of its basis, and that since then it has been floating in the air. One who no longer believes in ghosts only needs to follow through consistently in his unbelief to see that there is no separate essence at all behind things, no ghost or what is naively considered synonymous in our use of words, no spirit. I like that because it, it especially because it points out that in German, much in the same way as in English, ghost and spirit are not exactly the same thing. But yeah. they're very close synonyms. They just have like a different connotation. And Stirner is basically saying like, well, you don't believe in ghosts, do you? Then what do you believe in an eternal spirit that ascends to heaven? That's just a fucking ghost. You believe in ghost stories. Yeah. That's really interesting, too, that like it go. It kind of flies in the face of this notion of of Christianity. Well, like I guess some Christian traditions, right, embrace the potentiality for some type of like other spirits. But I in like a certain elements of Christianity, it's like there are no other spirits besides like oh yeah the spirits like, that inhabit us you like ascend to humans. heaven. Yeah, like if you ascend to heaven, you 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 reunite with God. You're like yeah. you're like just fully absorbed back into the whole. Whereas I think some other Christians are like, oh, I get to live in an Eden and be like reunited with God, but not, but still somehow also myself, which I think that's like the most, that's the most interesting trying to have your cake and eating it too. Right. That's like a recognition in that pathology that says like, but it would be scary to be (laughs) totally reunited with God and to lose my identity. It would almost be like a second death and they can't, they can't, can't let go of that they're like scared that they not just that they might die but that they might die in the afterlife (laughs) right (laughs) that's funny especially to compose to compare that to like eternal um damnation in hell right like where your individual being suffers punishment for your for what for your disconnection from the universal so you're banished. So yeah, <laughs> it's it's such a weirdness, and it's like this again. Like you're right, the Christians want it both ways because if you are, so if we are disconnect, if we're disconnected from God as a starting point, if we start out at a negative one because we're removed from the universal, then how are we going to? <laughs> then how are you you're going to spend eternity still divorced from the universal right well it's like the the promise is it's like okay 
you're here on earth, that means that you're not in the kingdom of heaven, right? Because right. you are already particularized. There's a you gap. are already separated from the universal. Yeah, there's a gap. There's a lack. And so you in life are supposed to strive towards that universal, towards God. And then the promise is that if you do that correctly, you'll actually get there, <laughs> which right. is amazing. But then the punishment is really just that it's not like fire and brimstone. It's really just that you won't ever get that, that you will then have to live in an afterlife in an, in an eternity apart from God as a separate thing from him. Yeah. Um, so really I think going to hell isn't as much like being punished as it is like forming a splinter group (laughs) from the main (laughs) organization. (laughs) But you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, if you think about it, as a, if you're thinking about it in terms of Christ or Christianity, like on Earth, I we are we're separated from God because of sin, because of the fall, right? Mm-hmm. So, yep. My punishment for being separated from God <laughs> is to be separated from God. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's it's reflexive. It's self-actualizing. It's like you're already separate from God. So the worst punishment would be for that to continue. Continue, right? Right, and then, and then it's a form of control, and because then they say like nothing you endure here on earth can be as bad as that. So you better act in accordance with those ideas rather than your actual interests here on earth. And then you're you've been completely duped. Now you have no longer have your own interests at heart. Have you ever seen the movie The Fountain, the Darren Ar- Aronofsky film? No, I haven't. So I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil you. Well, I fucking hate to spoil this, dude. But fuck it, you'll you'll forget this. But um, so <laughs> okay, there's yeah, an interesting. There's this interesting, also like this triune storytelling motif of these three separate characters within the the movie that are all um, interconnected. And so one element of one of the characters is this conquistador who is seeking out the tree of life and it has this sap. So if like you consume the sap from the tree of life, then you become immortal. And so what happens in is this total like unexpected thing. Once the conquistador drinks the sap from the tree of life, he, um, so he like, what he does is his, he's been stabbed in the stomach, this character and so he takes some of the tree sap and he like spreads it over the wound and it heals. So he's like, oh shit, this is real. Mm-hmm. This is like the tree of life, immortality. This is fucking it. And so then he starts to like fucking drink a shitload of this sap. And then all of a sudden like this shrubbery, like all this, he starts to starts to come out of him. And he's like eventually like absorbed into basically this like little set of flowers under the tree of life. So he's reunited right. with the universal but not in the way that he thought, not in this Christian idea no, it's, of being reincorporated. That's it. That, there's no per, there's no preservation of particularity, right? And that's the scary thing. That's the limit. Yes. That's the death that everybody is afraid right. of. Because if you lose that particularity, then you also lose, lose your attachment yourself. to the universal. But is it yourself? Yeah, well, Do you, you lose you yourself don't get as well? to celebrate... You lose yourself and you lose because also yourself is defined by your relations to things outside you, thing, even perceived universals, even if they're just other particularities. So if you have a 
pursuance of the universal, you can never actually attain the universal because if you lose your particularity, then you lose that thing that made you want to pursue the universal in the first place, right? You lose that reflexiveness of action and you become completely inert. You, you, you essentially cease to exist. Interesting. You'll have to check out that movie. I think it's interesting too that yeah, like I, de- the- I definitely want to now. I like Darren Aronofsky too. He's, He's his stuff is routinely good. I just did an episode on Pi that was really good, um, and that's why I've been like cause oh, I was yeah. thinking about this this idea that's big in Pi is like because the the main character is obsessed with with the, like he's been looking into Pi to try to develop this way to um, recognize patterns in the stock market. And he has his right. old teacher that was also like once working on the same sort of uh, like a corollary project. But he's like telling him, you know, you're going to once you're if you're looking for pie, you're going to if you're looking for this specific thing, you will see it everywhere. Once you're looking for that right. thing, you will see that thing, which is, again, this like sort of circular logic that Stern is really getting at too, And to like drive that home here with like this quote, you have spirit because you have thoughts what are your thoughts? Spiritual essences, and so not things? Right. No, but the spirit of things, the main point of all things, their innermost aspect, their idea, so what you think is not just your thought. On the contrary, it is the most real aspect. What is really true in the world is the truth itself. If only I truly think I think the truth. Woo! <laughs> that's so, and that's oh just him God. like putting a bow on it all, right? Yeah. He's just saying uh, like, you know, the re- the reflexivity of of language and even of perception and just being situated in a in a space like the uh, the 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 gap in a in epistemological understanding. Like, there's no direct access to ontology. So if you want the truth, just think truly. <laughs> you know. This is another, uh, this is one, actually, I enjoy this. He's hinting at this idea here, I think, that, mm-hmm. well, maybe I should read, I'll, I'll read the quote first, and then we'll, we'll perhaps dive into it. Sacred things only exist for the ghost who doesn't recognize himself, the involuntary egoist, for the one who is always out for his own, and yet does not consider himself the highest essence who only serves himself and at the same time always thinks of serving a higher being, who knows nothing higher than himself and yet is crazy about something higher. In short, for the egoist who doesn't want to be an egoist and degrades himself, i.e. fights his egoism, but at the same time degrades himself so that he will be exalted and thus gratify his egoism. (laughs) And I love that. That's like... um. There's an episode of Friends, and I'm totally serious. There's an episode of the TV show Friends where Phoebe and Joey have a competition to try and see if either of them can come up with a completely selfless act, something that they derive absolutely no benefit from and only helps another person. And by the end of the episode, they realize that even just the gratification of knowing that they achieved a truly selfless act is still a reward in itself. And that's kind of what he's saying here, where he says the egoist who degrades himself and fights his egoism, but at the same time degrades himself so that he will be exalted. Even if it's just by himself, even if it's just so you can pat yourself on the back and say, I did a good thing. 
that's still an egoistic impulse yeah. to to into action and there's it doesn't there's no escape from that no matter how many fancy things you put on it oh i gave to charity oh i did this oh, i did that well did you do it so you could tell me about it did you do it so you could sleep at night like those are all still self-interested motivations and reading Sterner, I can't tell you how often I think about this old episode of Friends <laughs> that I should probably go back and rewatch, but I, I haven't in a long time. I just remember from when it was on TV, it made such an impression on me. Yeah. And I, I think this in particular, it's like a good critique of the sort of, of the kind of Marxist conception of, I guess, I don't know if, not, not the individual, but like I guess the critique of Sterner as like this, this of egoism as this kind of bullshit individualist liberalism. Um, but I think that, yeah, it's like there's a, yeah. there's an element of bad faith when you like say, oh, I'm like, like you're pointing out, it's like that egoism of, of class, of like asserting class struggle or like identifying with class or whatever outside like or revolution or like whatever the idea is that is outside of yourself right you're going to run into that mhm like this no like you're exactly a, a, well just a, acknowledge and behave in in good faith towards your own egoism right like be aware of it <laughs> but don't like you can't just full full on reject your own selfless or like come come to terms with like not being an egoist like you need to you need to address that otherwise you're living in bad faith yep well and and i think that i don't know if it was from reading sterner or not but peter kropotkin actually kind of articulates this in a different way in his uh short work uh anarchist morality where he i won't read the whole thing but um he says uh here is a man who snatches his last mouthful of bread from a child. Everyone agrees in saying that he is a horrible egoist, that he is guided solely by self-love. But now here is another man whom everyone agrees to recognize as virtuous. He shares his last bit of bread with the hungry and strips off his coat to clothe the naked. And the moralists, sticking to their religious jargon, hasten to say that this man carries the love of his neighbor to the point of self-abnegation, that he obeys a wholly different passion from that of the egoist. And yet with a little reflection, we soon discover that however great the difference between the two actions in their result for humanity, the motive has still been the same. It is the quest of pleasure." If the man who gives his last shirt away found no pleasure in doing so, he would not do it. If he found pleasure in taking bread from a child, he would do that, but it is distasteful to him. And then he gives like 40 other examples from the animal kingdom, from uh, martyrs, from the the butcher of thiers. Like he, he just keeps going. But it all comes back to that same point. They all acted out of what they thought would be pleasurable to them or would result in the avoidance of pain. Right. Which is, so I don't know if you're familiar with him. If you, I don't know if you do. You follow Elliot Rosenstock? Do you know who that is? Yeah, I know who that is. I wouldn't say I follow him, but gotcha. Um, so he has a really interesting conception of like he calls himself a Hegelian egoist. And okay, I don't. Know, I did an episode with him. He has this really interesting formulation of how like sort of this kind of sternary, stern, sternarian, <laughs> sternarian, um, 
egoist conception is mm-hmm. like the is sort of like this fundamental like there's this three pillars that he kind of says that things are built on. I don't remember them offhand, but a pretty compelling argument, I think. And really interesting too to just see somebody who like <laughs> embraces egoism through a Hegelian lens. I don't know that's right, that's kind of unexpected or interesting. Yeah, I think it's kind of unexpected when you get your first upfront explanations of like who Hegel and Stirner and Marx and everybody are. But like even just through the course of this episode as we've been digging into this, it's like all the arguments that people make about Stirner I feel like have a lot of weight to them. Like he predicted or kind of anticipated postmodernism and post-structuralism. Like I think that's true. He kind yeah. of anticipated some psychoanalytic theory. I think that's true. He uh, you know, there's the spicy paper where it's like what if Scherner was actually just Hegel's best student in some ways? I think that's true. Yeah. You know, Marx is also obviously pretty good. Um it's kind of a toss up between my boys yeah. there. I don't want to pit my boys against each other, but you know, the, I I I like them both and yeah. that's why people will be shocked when I'll tell them online I'm like I'm kind of an ego communist kind of anarchist i'm a bunch of things and they're like how do you reconcile that stuff and i'm like it's really easy actually (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i think maybe well it's like maybe i think you can say that sterner is the best student of hegel without necessarily saying he's the best application of hegel and maybe that is where the distinction between Marx and Stirner, maybe, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm happy with that. Well, but. that, that kind of makes sense, too, because I think part of Marx's thing was he wanted to get out of theory just for the sake of theory, right? And, right. like, I think that's also an instinct that, like, you know, psychoanalysis took on with, you know, clinical work and trying to tie things into, like, people's lived experiences. And so there were a lot of people who kind of were like, philosophy should be tied into other disciplines and i think sterner was like i'm just talking about like philosophy yeah because he didn't even want to do philosophy he wanted to break philosophy down yeah (laughs) right huh interesting i'm wondering i'd be interested to hear your thoughts in that that same idea i mean beyond maybe what you've already said about your sort of investigation in the la ruelle yeah yeah oh i mean that's Shit. I mean, I would have to finish. I would have to finish <laughs> reading this book first, but I will yeah. get back to you on that. Right on. I love this. I don't know what this means, but God has become a human being, but the human being is now himself the terrifying phantasm. Is this like? I guess <laughs> I if think this that's is just a, a direct Feuerbach? shout out to Feuerbach. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. He's he's just saying like Feuerbach has has taken God with a capital G and quickly swapped it out while no one was looking for humanity with a capital H. Right. I think this quote, of course that wouldn't really mean anything in the original German because all nouns are capitalized in German, but you get the idea. (laughs) I embrace and cherish you because I have love for you because my heart finds nourishment and my need satisfaction in you. It is not for the sake of the higher essence whose sanctified body you are, Thus, not because I see a ghost, i.e. an appearing spirit in in you, but out of egoistic pleasure, you yourself, with your essence, are of value to me, because your essence is not a higher one, not higher and more general than you. It is unique like you yourself, because it is you. Yeah, and I like that too, because it's like, 
he's essentially saying like your relationship to yourself, this unknowable kind of creative nothing that you have to gesture around and kind of try and encapsulate unsuccessfully over and over again is the same way that you interact with other people. But at the same time, even as you're doing that and recognizing that there's another creative nothing in that person in front of you, you have no, like in the mechanics of interacting with another person, you have no choice but to make them your property. You're internalizing them. You're listening to what they're saying. You're looking at their expression and their facial features and, and, and all of the different ways that they're communicating to you because they are, you know, you're experiencing the phantasm of them, the sense perception. And he, I think he wants to get away from the idea that like, I, I, I appreciate somebody because of them and it's true, but you only appreciate them because of them because of you it's all filtered <laughs> through your own creative nothing acting as the nexus point for everything yes all all things are nothing to me right exactly exactly until i make them my own you know i and i set my cause upon nothing because it's only from that void that i can draw anything that i can draw any attributes or ideas or or processes about it's, the world it's only by my lack that i can generate my subjectivity <laughs> like that's pure yes right. so i think well, we answered like, the question maybe that lack and creative nothing or or maybe maybe not so much that as that lacan's lack and you know, Stirner's like, conception think, is it, it, similar I, sterner's like saying that in order to recognize someone else as a person as a live not as a person but like as a thing as a fully actualized entity a consciousness whatever um you have to recognize that they are also a lacking being they are not this perfect other they're it's not a universal standing in front of you you're not meeting god you're meeting right. another thing that is like you but is not like you uh <laughs> in a in a fluid kind of constantly lacking way it's like a intersubjectivity comes from uh, reciprocation of lack, almost yeah. or incompleteness. Recognition of, hmm. not recognition of the other or by the other. Hmm. I don't know. I'm thinking out loud. <laughs> it's almost like the recognition of the the rec- the the ability to connect to other people comes from the recognition that you can't really fully connect to other people. You can't be their experiences. And experience them as them in their in their full continuity or or discontinuity yeah. or whatever. You only have your mediated expression of them, and so in that, you know, you are each in your interrelationship taking each other as your own property. Nice, <laughs> that's so great, and it's so much like I don't know. That's a completely different, I think, reality of what Sterner is talking about then I think the meme like you know what I mean then most people's kind of knee-jerk reflexive response to egoism or sterner in general yes well and even like a lot of quote-unquote academics like if you look at a lot of the versions of sterner's works that have made it into the United States uh, or things that he's credited in a lot of these people will be like I'd like to thank Max Sterner and Ayn Rand for showing me <laughs> the path of individualism and ruggedness and prosperity and I'm like you're a fucking idiot who doesn't know how to read or doesn't have a sense of humor or doesn't understand yeah. when something is a joke or read a bad translation or something 
And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, and Wolfie even talks about this in the, in the kind of notes on the translation, that the original translation was by a man who's, I don't remember his first name, but Mr. Byington. And Byington was a devout Christian. And he even says right there, he's like, could a devout Christian do justice to a translation of Max Turner? I have my doubts. And I'm like, I certainly have my doubts as well. <laughs> the section we'll finish up on today is the Bats in the Belfry section, which again is 1.2.2.2.2. I think this is <laughs> so. This is really funny to me because, like, this phrase Bats in the Belfry, I feel like maybe it's the 89. Batman, but I think the Joker says something about yeah. <laughs> having bats in his belfry. So this really just kind of I think you're right. <laughs> made me laugh in general. Um but I, I do like this this little little quote, so I'm gonna read this. Man, your head is haunted. You have bats in your belfry. You're imagining big things and painting <laughs> for yourself a whole world of gods that there is for you a haunted realm to which you are called, an ideal that beckons to you. You have a fixed idea. Do not think that I am joking or speaking figuratively when I look upon those who cling to something higher. I mean, that's just so good right there, right? With a joke, he kind of like caps it all off. He's like, (laughs) I also love that, um, of course, it's supposed to be read like, man, your head is haunted, like gesturing towards all of man or the, the humanitarian ideal. But it also kind of just sounds like a surfer dude saying something to his bro after a smoke sesh, like, man, your head is haunted. (laughs) It's almost like a Scooby-Doo kind of level of philosophy. But um, I think it really, it speaks to the way that a lot of people go about pursuing meaning, which is to think that there's going to be some kind of postulate of reason or postulate of of methodology that they can cling to and say, this is it, this is correct, this is the scientific method, or this is this is true Christian theology, or this is, you know, whatever, and exalt this as an ideal above all other ideals. And he's just like, when you do that, you've become completely haunted and you have bats in your belfry. It will just drive you absolutely insane because you're being influenced by all of these ideas that, you know, it's not real. It's, it's a symbolic order that you've superimposed to, to try and access a complete thing that lies behind your lack. And there is no complete thing behind your lack. This is where I think the specters of Marx would, would come into play. And I feel like I almost know for sure that there was this quote, that Derrida references specifically about this bats in the belfry, but I'm not fucking finding it. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> like I could have sworn that he like literally, literally mentioned that specific quote. Was it the one where he's like, he, I think he was just talking about ghosts, right? It was like mensch, mensch is spooked in Danum Kopfa more than others. Perhaps. Oh, is this from Spectres of Marx? More than others. Perhaps Marx had ghosts in his head and yeah. knew without, knowing what he was talking about mensch is spooked in deinem kopfe one might say to him in a parody of sterner and yeah. i don't speak german so don't correct my pronunciation <laughs> dear listener yeah that that's the quote i was thinking of for sure <laughs> yeah i mean it's good stuff and it's easy that's what that's the other thing i like about sterner is it's like once you kind of start to settle in and get comfortable with the kind of logic that he's using and the kind of like very it's like a logic of immediacy yeah. Right. It's like a logic of the the immediate and the, the it's not transcendental. It's not 
idealist. It's not even really materialist. It's more like, I've called it nominalist before or particularist, because I guess uniquest doesn't have the same kind of ring to it. But that's that's kind of what it is. I wonder if Deleuze's notion of like transcendental empiricism maybe approaches and facilitates that. Or if that's the synthesis of it. Yeah, it, that's the article it that could we read be. last time um, you came on. Was the it was specifically about that transcendental empiricism, right? So I'll throw that piece in the show notes just so someone can reference if they want to read that article. It's fairly short. Moving on, I think this is kind of where it gets a little bit more relevant to kind of like the current moment that we're existing in, and as applying some of this conceptually to something like the law and how it functions. So I'll read Mm -hmm. here again. And what can you argue against it from your principle of morality? But it was an illegal execution. So the immoral aspect in this was the illegality, the disobedience to the law. So you admit that the good is nothing other than the law, morality, nothing other than loyalty. Your morality must also sink down to this outward appearance of loyalty to the sacred work of fulfillment of the law except the latter is both more tyrannical and more revolting than the old-time sacred work. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I mean, that's like the argument that you see all the time now, which is just like, oh, the, the cops shouldn't have, you know, handled that person that way or shot that person. That was illegal. That's not a justified use of force. And it's like, they just shouldn't have shot that person because it didn't make any sense. They weren't threatened. They had all the power in that situation. Like you don't need to have something jump in like the law and have it be the arbiter of what's appropriate and what's not there. There are considerations that go above and beyond that and come from a particular place of each person who is assessing the situation. Is the law spooked? The law is spooked though, right? Yeah. The law is completely spooked. It's a, or haunted or phantasmical, phantasmagorical, whatever the fucking (laughs) phrase would be. Um, and, and people love that though. People love to have something that's haunted because when something is haunted, like in that way, ideologically haunted, it kind of gives them the go ahead to start hot swapping it out for morality or the right way to handle things. It's like contemporary Christians. They want the law to reflect Christianity because they think there really is only one steadfast, fixed, unifying moral code. And it's, you know, they can't conceive that there would ever be any other kind of morality because of course not. There's one kind, right? Otherwise it's not morality. And then liberals, as Sterner exemplifies in this critique of, of Feuerbach, and I think this next quote really goes to that critique of, of kind of how really just kind of swapping out God for what? You, the humanity or um, what's the... Uh, yeah, humanism? human or man with a capital M. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, it, it, it's just translating... Uh, the ethics and morals that are based in Christian lore and and saying, oh, these are actually just humanist principles. Yeah. And and it's a it's secular now, but it's not. It's it's still a religion. It still has the functions and the form of religious faith. Right. I, I love this too. This the quote that I'm gonna read that goes to that, but also like shows how dog shit liberals were even in like even in Sterner's day. <laughs> but it, this quote captures today's left liberals better than anything. Why don't certain op- 
opposition mo- movements flourish? Let me read that. Why don't certain opposition movements flourish? Merely for the reason that they don't want to leave the path of morality or legality. I mean, God, what's more fucking liberal than that shit? <laughs> Thus, the excessive hypocrisy of devotion, love, etc. from those whose repulsiveness one can daily get the most thorough disgust for this corrupt and hypocritical relationship of legal opposition. Damn. Almost well, as this if is this just is like the Democrats dealing headline. with Trump. Yeah, exactly. It is. I mean, it's exactly how the Democrats deal with everything, right? They're like, he can't do that. And then Donald he does. Is legally bound to do this. Che- yeah, and then he does. And it's like, oh, how will how will Donald wriggle his way out of this one? Yeah. And then he does. And it's like, ah, well, nevertheless, we'll get him next time. <laughs> He'll do something even more heinous that we can finally bring him down on. And it's like, that's never going to fucking happen. Yeah. And I love how relevant this next it's a pretty uh, lengthy quote, but I'm still going to read it because I think it just has such it ex- it extends this further while also it's having such relevance to like our current moment. And it's particularly a figure like yeah. Trump. A Nero is only a bad person in the eyes of the good. In my eyes, he is only a possessed person, as are the good, too. The good see in him an arch villain and relegate him to hell. Why did nothing hinder, hinder him <laughs> in his arbitrary acts? Why do people put up with so much? Were the docile Romans who let all of their wills be bound by such a tyrant, perhaps a hair better? In old Rome, they would have immediately executed him, would never have become his slaves. But the contemporary good among the Romans only opposed moral demands to him, not their wills. They sighed that their emperor did not pay homage to morality like they did. They themselves remained moral subjects until one finally found the courage to abandon moral, obedient subjection. And then these same good Romans, who as obedient subjects had endured all the shame of a lack of will, cheered over the outrageous, immoral act of the rebel, so wherein the good was the courage for revolution, which they now praised after someone else had grasped it. The good good couldn't have had this courage because a revolution... And even insurrection is always something immoral, which only one can decide upon when one ceases to be good and either becomes bad or neither of the two. Drops the mic. And that's just like, yeah, I mean, shit, if that's not a picture of the Democrats dealing with Trump in the present day, I don't know what is. And, I, you know, it's funny. You never hear people say, wow, Trump, you know, he's a real Emperor Nero. Yeah. <laughs> even though it would be a perfectly accurate fucking uh corollary maybe just because like people don't know their roman history that well or whatever but i i love this because it's like it also covers the fact that like once somebody has the courage to do something to be bad for a second to be immoral or insurrectionary and they do something that changes things all of a sudden all the good you know moral and ethical liberals who wanted to play nice and 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 get them on legal grounds are suddenly like yeah that was good. I'm so glad you did that. And it's like, well, why didn't you do that? Right. Why wasn't it done at the beginning of this problem? You know, yeah, moral obedient subjection. If that, that's the fucking DNC right there, that's yeah. Nancy Pelosi. Like, impeach the Cheeto. Like, you're never going to impeach the Cheeto. You need to do something illegal. Like, try some underhanded bullshit. I, yeah. I sincerely doubt you'll pull it off, but like, try. Like, yeah. Again, I would just want to read this to just emphasize this in the context of of the Democrats. Why did nothing hinder him in his arbitrary acts? Why did people put up so much? 
were the docile Americans who let all their wills be bound by such a tyrant, perhaps. <laughs> In old America, they would have immediately executed. I don't know if that part would actually yeah, bears not. out <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in the analysis. Not. We've always been pretty docile here. We right. love we love our symbols and flags and stuff. But yeah, when I when I was looking over the notes for this and I read that, I was like, that's it's such an app. Dis- I, I know it's the third time I'm saying it, but it's like that's such an app description of how everything's going today. I kind of like want to make a post about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> on the Internet. So this last quote, I don't know if it really fits into anything. So I might, might have to cut this, but I'm going to read it now and we'll talk about it and see where this goes. Yeah. You might have some better insight. Yeah. When one's own is contrasted with what is imparted, you take away nothing with the objection that we cannot have anything isolated, but receive everything in global connection. Therefore, the impression of what is around us and thus have it as something imparted, because there is a great gap between the feelings and thoughts that are aroused in me by something else and those which are given to me. And then he lists God, immorality, Yeah, so I freedom, think what he's humanity. saying here is like, he, it's like... um. It's like a commentary on learning and in, in the enthusiasm or the interest, I guess, that it takes to learn something. When one's own is contrasted with what is imparted, it's like what I have learned from seeing something versus what somebody is telling me I need to learn from this. It's kind of like when you read a book for English class and then your teacher's up at the front explaining what the book is really about. And you're like, yeah, that's not that's not what I got from it at all. And then you just don't even fucking listen to their explanation because you're like, I don't care about that. That's a stupid fucking explanation for this book. And that's like, I think what he's talking about there when he says there's a great gap between the feelings and thoughts that are aroused in me by something else. When I see something and I make it my own and I learn and I really take it into myself and I'm affected by it. That is so much more profound than those which are kind of given to me and i'm told that like you know when a priest or a teacher or an authority figure a parent whatever tells you this is how you have to act and this is why that is because and these are the reasons that underlie that and you're just like i don't know is this all really true like i feel like i have my own motivations and that's the um that's the thing when he's just he says you take away nothing with the objection that we cannot have anything isolated but receive everything in global connection therefore through the impression of what is around us and thus have it as something imparted like it doesn't feel like yours. It feels like you have to carry around an alien ideology to have access to some greater measure of truth or, or connectedness. At least that's the impression that I got Gosh. from it. I don't have anything to add there. Uh, I think that concludes, that gets us all the way to the end of Bats in the Belfry. And we'll pick up next time with the hierarchy section. And then hopefully we can wrap up part one of, uh, of the unique in its property. But uh, do you have any other final thoughts or anything that you wanted to articulate you didn't get a chance to throughout our discussion so far? Uh, No, I'm just really glad that we're finally taking the time to go through this in a little bit more of a thorough fashion because I've always felt like while I had a good understanding of Stirner, um, my conversations about him weren't... uh, weren't grounded in the same way that I see some people talking about Marx's capital and stuff like that. And I was like, well, you know, it's not really that long of a piece, maybe doing a uh, more critical reading of it than I did when I read it the first time where I was like, you know, probably not even absorbing 50% of the information. And it was just, is just really good and has been really healthy 
to see it to see it articulated in the original words and to have a good translation of course using the better translated version of it i would encourage anybody who wants to read this for themselves to read this version and not bother with the older translations and i'll post uh so i think the anarchist library actually has both translations so i'll include that in the show notes Mm -hmm. too just um, in case anyone's interested but yeah it was like i was thinking that in doing that ongoing series I've been doing with uh, Machine Gun Conscious that I felt like this deserved like a similar treatment, especially since it's Sterner is, you right. know, so like memed and like misunderstood and and slandered, I think, in general to give him like the the credit he deserves for being like an influential thinker or like um, attacking or really formulating a lot of ideas that other thinkers picked up on, like, you know, we mentioned, we've mentioned Lacan, we've mentioned Deleuze, we've mentioned Derrida, um, you know, there's a lot of common ground, and we'll be referencing as we move through, probably not so much the next episode, but like, once we get into part two, I think is really where Deleuze's references from Nietzschean philosophy are going to become more relevant, Mm -hmm. and then perhaps two, we can maybe incorporate some of the, uh, the stuff from specters of Marx that's relevant but i think i don't know that's that's a little bit more challenging i think i'd like to track down a copy of specters of Marx. honestly i've heard so much about it and i've never sat down to read it i will email you (laughs) but uh if you want sounds good to me don't tell the intellectual property police (laughs) right um but yeah uh, we'll have john back on at some point within the next i don't know a couple of weeks to hopefully knock out the second half of part one um, but John, if you want to go ahead and plug your uh, plug your projects and shit you're working on, feel free, my friend. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, if uh, you want to hear more of me talking about bullshit, I get really really <laughs> high and do a current events show called Beep Beep Lettuce with three of my friends. Um, I have a, another show called Work Stoppage that focuses almost entirely on labor issues, strikes, uh, labor conditions, organizing that kind of thing. Um, and that's with me and Lena. It's called uh, Work Stoppage, and we just set up our Patreon for that not too long ago. And then I also have a Twitch stream called twitch.tv slash bbbloodispod, um, <clears throat> where I play uh, Mario Kart with my friends every Saturday and occasionally stream some other stuff. Uh, I might also start a YouTube channel soon. Oh, shit. Uh, who knows what the future holds for your boy, JPZ. Nice. But thank you so much for having me on your show. It's really been a pleasure. A- anytime. I mean, you're one of my favorite people that I've ever had on the show. Um, and I think like helped oh, propel stop. my interest in, in Sterner as well. So I think it's very appropriate that I have you on to, to tackle this. I'm glad we're getting a chance to do it. Um, so what, what do I need to, I, so I've been wanting to stream. I want to stream basically like <laughs> I want to play super Mario Kart and stream that shit. What is my best route? Yeah. I think I've asked you this in the past, but you, you know how it is. <laughs> What's my best avenue? I mean, if you want to play it, you you could just emulate it and get a cheap Bluetooth controller and hook it up to your computer and then download OBS for free and it would be really easy to hook up to a Twitch or a YouTube or whatever. Um, but if you really want to play it like with an original SNES controller and uh, uh, get the like, real experience, uh, SNES Classic Minis are available for sale yeah. they're like around a hundred dollars maybe yeah. 115 dollars you have one just get a get an elgato capture card the cheapest one you can find that's uh in good condition and like i got mine for like 80 or 90 dollars yeah um 
it's just a USB HDMI in one side, HDMI out the other. Nice. And you'll be good to go. People love retro games. If you play Super Mario Kart, you got to do it on emulator at least once so we can do net play and I can play with you because I'm badass at that yeah. game. I'm wondering what, like, I don't know. I haven't fucked with emulators in so long. I'm not sure what's good for, I have a Mac for one. And I'm wondering too, like, is my laptop going to be powerful enough to do the capture, um, the Elgato stuff? Oh yeah, it definitely should. If it, just find out what kind of processor you have and what kind of graphics card you have, and then look up the best settings to use in OBS for streaming that because I didn't do that for a long time. And then when I realized that they had a special video encoding mode specifically for I three and I five processors, I was like, Oh, and then I used that and all of the issues that I was having with streaming just like disappeared. (laughs) Right on. Um, so just a reminder again that I do have a Patreon again, it's www.patreon.com forward slash M U H H. Uh, just to guilt you again, a reminder that uh, Jeff Tiedrich, the Trump reply guy that looks like Eric Clapton, makes like three times as much money Eric Clapton. for his fucking tweets, his replies to Trump. Um, so take that take that as you will. Uh, but in addition, you can find us on Twitter at UnconsciousHH and on Instagram at UnconsciousHH. But this is going to be Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week. Have a good one, everyone. Including the ultimate form of security, which is